Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Doug Bandow is not removed from our debate on international uh, relations. He's with the Libertarian Cato Institute. I'm going to call him a conservative. Doug, you had a tour of duty with President Ronald Reagan. Let me start with the uh, what if. What would Reagan do? Well, I think Reagan would be tough, but he wouldn't talk the way that President Trump has done. He'd recognize it as a superpower. We don't have to ratchet up the pressure. He'd make very clear that any attack on the Americas, you know, America would be responded to. Uh, but I think he'd also look for negotiation. I think he'd look for that backdoor channel. He did that with the Soviets. You know, Reagan was a man who understood you had to be tough, but you had to look for diplomatic yeah. solutions. We have to have both those uh, you know, possibilities. Yeah. I'd also suggest that he had a uh, respect for the intelligence community. Cho Seng Hung has, without question, the read of the morning. It is a lengthy article on the leader of North Korea uh, in the New York Times. It is a spectacular read of his Pulitzer Prize winning uh, history in Korea. Doug, do we know who this guy is? And does President Trump have a clue who he's up against? I'm skeptical that the president does. I mean, at least his reputation is somebody who doesn't particularly like to be briefed and particularly doesn't like to have long you know, briefings. So my guess is that he's responding much more kind of out of his gut. In many ways, I think there are certain similarities, oddly enough, between Kim Jong-un and President Trump and the way they respond, more emotional, more impulsive. And that, that, that's a reason, that's cause for concern. I don't think either man wants war, but you get a couple of guys kind of you know, being tough against one another, things could spiral out of control. I have a question here about Reagan's rhetoric. We talk so much about his sweeping rhetoric, his ability to give a speech that would galvanize the, the, the American people. Uh, compare the, the, the speeches he gave his appreciation for rhetoric to what we're hearing from, from President Trump. I look, I look at the, the tweets. I certainly am still focused on that fire and fury line. How much of that was, was Reagan himself? How much of that was a very closely coordinated communications team? Well, it was both. I mean, Reagan had a very good sense. I mean, he understood, for example, you know, you know, joke, you know talk, calling the evil empire. He was trying to reach you know, Soviets. He was trying to reach especially Eastern Europeans. He had an audience in mind. But under Gorbachev, at one point, he was asked, do you still consider the Soviet Union an evil empire? And he basically said, that was in the past. I'm looking forward. You know, and he had a communications team who would monitor things, very concerned about dealing with the Soviets. But Reagan was quite willing to buck them when he thought it was necessary. You know, being prepared to make a deal, but he was prepared to be tougher as well. For example, the Berlin Wall, the line, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan kept putting that in when staff members were taking uh-huh. it out. His view was, this is a clarion call we've got to make. But compare that, I think, to President Trump. Reagan had a specific objective there in terms of who he was trying to reach in a way that I think President Trump is kind of blustering. I think that's the difference. Doug, I draw a line here between what you've written and what um, Ambassador Susan Rice writes in the New York Times this morning. You've said there's plenty of evidence that the leader of North Korea is ruthless and cruel, but none that he's blind or suicidal. She writes, by most assessments, he's vicious and impetuous, but not uh, irrational. Does the rhetoric that we hear here match the risk? Well, I think... You know, logically, there should not be much of a risk. That is, the North is responding out of weakness. They're scared. I mean, they point to Afghanistan, they point to Iraq, frankly, they point to Libya, where the dictator made a deal, gave up his nukes and missiles, and look what happened to him. 
you know, so this bluster, I think, covers that up. You know, they don't want to start a war. They want to keep America out. You know, on the other hand, if you start going one-on-one with the United States, you start talking about dropping missiles near American possessions, I think they've yeah. kind of underestimated America's yeah. uh, you know, willingness to put up with this stuff. David Gurr, bring back uh, the esteemed uh, uh, Mr. Bandow at Cato. But I, I, I'm trying to put in scope and scale North Korea, which yeah. is difficult with the data. But the economy of North Korea is, is on first order 2% the size of New York City's economy. Mm. And that's just some back of the envelope, back of the bow tie math. It may be 4%, but, <laughs> but my quick math is 2% the size of the New York City economy, the greater New York economy. Doug Bando, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, former special assistant to uh, President Ronald Reagan. Doug, as I understand it, you were in North Korea rather recently, and, and just give us a sense of how that visit has, has shaped your sense of, uh, of, of this conflict in particular. Sure. And uh, you know, if you're thinking about comparisons, it's about the economy of Anchorage. I mean, that's the economy okay. of North Korea. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I, was, you know, I was there 25 years ago, so I had a point of comparison. I mean, Pyongyang has more money today than it did 25 years ago. The countryside remains desperately poor. As you pointed out, it's got about 5% of the economy of South Korea. I mean, you, know, you compare Seoul, South Korea, and you know, Pyongyang, I mean, there, there's no comparison. At least today, there's some private cars in, North, in Pyongyang. There's cell phones. They're not supposed to reach outside of the country, but they are there. You know, fashion has come to uh, Pyongyang. Women dress nice. Men are still pretty plain. You know, so it's, you can see a little bit of economic life there. The Kim Jong-un clearly wants economic development. His father, I think, viewed it as being destabilizing and frankly didn't care very much. You know, but it remains desperately far behind the U.S. I mean, desperately far behind South Korea. That's one of the things that fuels this kind of rabid nationalism and the bluster, you know, all they have to do is look south. I mean, any North Korean who visits another country, almost any other country, knows how far behind they are. We talk a lot about the, the trade relationship between North Korea and China, given, given the focus of that relationship as we talk about sanctions at the UN Security Council, and uh, we certainly hear the president talking about China's, the need for China to do more. How does that play out when you're on the ground there? How, how evident is, the, uh, is, is that trading relationship? It's actually not very evident at all. What's interesting is, despite the trading relationship, the relations between the two governments is not good. You know, that, I mean, tradition, the North Koreans are very independent. They don't want to be a province of China. Back in the 50s, the dictator took out kind of the pro-China faction within the North Korean Communist Party to the consternation of the Chinese. You know, what you find is a lot of dismissiveness and complaints about China in their media. And what was striking, I went to the War Museum. They call it the Victorious Fatherland War Museum. And basically, you would think that Kim Il-sung won the war on his own. You wouldn't be aware that somewhere along the line, a few hundred thousand Chinese troops showed up. I mean, this museum presents this as almost entirely a victory of the North Koreans. I mean, China's not even mentioned. That kind of thing irritates the Chinese, especially because the son of the dictator Mao Zedong died in North Korea. You know, he was buried there. I mean, it's a very strange relationship. And that, that economic side, they don't advertise that there. You know, the Chinese are involved. They buy minerals, until recently coal and other stuff. You know, but they don't highlight that. Doug, I, I returned to this op-ed in the Times uh, this morning by Susan Rice, the former National Security Advisor. She, she writes about 
preempt, a preventative war, a, a phrase that we've heard a few times here over these last couple of weeks. And, and she writes, that would result in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of casualties. Metropolitan Seoul's 26 million people are only 35 miles from the border within easy range of the North's missiles and artillery. She also notes 23,000 United States troops plus their families live between Seoul and the demilitarized zone. In total, at least 200,000 Americans reside in South Korea. Give us your sense of, of the calculus uh, policymakers in the Pentagon are going through right now. Of course, we had Secretary Mattis on the West Coast last evening talking to reporters about this, talking solemnly about all the preparation that he's been doing, because indeed that is a, a huge component of, of his job. What's happening in the policy planning department uh, at the Defense Department right now? Well, my sense is that, I mean, Mattis has, uh, until recently, has talked about how diplomacy is the answer. This is not a guy looking towards some kind of preventative war. I mean, he understands the seriousness of it. I mean, Mattis is a very serious guy and understands the costs of war. I think that what his statements, though tough, I think in many ways are trying to calm things down a bit by making it very clear that you know, we would retaliate against anything we're capable of doing it. The North had better not act. I don't think that he expects North Korea to do so. Again, I don't think people have seen North Korea as being suicidal. I like to tell people, you know, Kim Jong-un, like his father and grandfather, wants his virgins in this life, not the next. This is not a guy who's thinking of, wouldn't it be wonderful to go out in a bit of glory? He wants to preserve the regime. You know, so I think they're looking at, particularly the questions of mistake, they're worried about escalation. I mean, if you wanted to try to take out nuclear sites, is there a way you could convince the North Koreans it was not the beginning of regime change? To me, that's the biggest problem. If the North Koreans merely thought you were taking out, say, their missile, they might decide it's not worth starting a war, but if they're convinced this is merely a prelude to an all-out American attack, all uh, Iraq, then I think the lesson they learned is you yeah. don't wait for the U.S. You go. You start it. What, you know, if, if they do a missile or whatever they do, I don't want to sound like I know ballistics or whatever it's called, and they point the thing south, you know, usually they point it east, if you will, in the vicinity of Japan with a capital J, what would you expect would be anyone's response if they change the vector of that missile launch and point it southish in the vicinity of Guam? And I mean a thousand miles from Guam, but what would be the vector change that we would see? Well, my guess is that they'd monitor it very you know, closely. What they try to do is get a sense, does this look like another test that's going to land a ways away? Or do you actually think there's a possibility this could hit? I mean, again, one missile you know, being shot off, it's almost you know, impossible to imagine that would be an attack on Guam because that would be the craziest thing imaginable, <laughs> very unlikely. But still, I mean, at the Pentagon, you have to watch that stuff. So I think that's what they would look at. And then they decide, do they think they could take it down? The question, they do have a THAAD battery there, you know, an anti-missile battery. They'd have to decide, could they take it out in the terminal phase as it's coming down? And if they thought it was coming too close, they might try that. There's been a lot of, uh, of criticism of previous administrations for not having done more. Eli Lake, a columnist for Bloomberg View, writing about that uh, this week, that uh, you know there was opportunity in the past before North Korea got to where it is today, miniaturizing a nuclear weapon, testing these intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles. Take us back to when you were in the Reagan White House. To what degree was North Korea then on the radar? Oh, it, it really wasn't at all. I mean, the Soviet Union was the big issue. I mean, we were still dealing in the early days with the Soviet Union as the evil empire. We had Brezhnev. You know, I mean, the, uh, the, the kind of general secretaries, you got Andropov, who was the former KGB chief. 
You know, so the U.S. is worried about a real cha- you know, ex- nuclear exchange with the real nuclear power. It, we weren't even talking about nuclear weapons for North Korea then. It was a very small subset that it became kind of the bigger issue when the Soviet Union went away, when uh, now China went away. They're kind of left as the real bad guys. I, I've never asked this question because it's never gone through my puny little brain. <laughs> my experience of so-called nuclear is either movies, cinema, Hollywood— I guess we dropped two bombs on Japan a few years ago. Have we ever done a supposed modern nuclear exchange? Is this like to the military people? Is this all as new as it is for us? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, certainly our nuclear weapons and the hydrogen bombs are far more powerful. I mean, what you find is, you know, people occasionally say, this warhead has the power of, say, 10 of the bombs that were dropped on your Hiroshima or something. I mean, we are in a different world. The thought of then of multiple nukes falling. I mean, we have MIRVed warheads. We have multiple warheads on a missile. I mean, you know, we have miniaturized. We have tactical. You know, we're in such a vastly different world here that, you know, the U.S. has a quite an arsenal. I mean, the North Koreans, we think, might have about 20, maybe, nuclear warheads. Of, you know, we have no idea really how, how they could be deployed and presented. You know, the U.S. has a vast arsenal. You get into a nuclear exchange, then, you know, the North can do some harm. The U.S. could wipe out the North without any question. Great to speak with you. Very valuable Great uh, this morning. Yeah, Doug Bandow. Is he from fellow. Anchorage? <laughs> That's very good. That parallel useful as well. Yeah. Doug Bandow, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan on our phone lines. Always good on a Friday to speak to Jeffrey Rosenberg. He synthesizes the financial and the mathiness of what we do with Where Do I Get Some Yield, among other great services. He writes a note for BlackRock with uncommonly smart charts. Jeffrey, if we get inflation today in 28 minutes, if we get another inflation report come September, and then we stagger to a September 20 Fed meeting, do any of those inflation port reports really matter? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, they, they do matter because the Fed is telling a narrative of transitory weakness. So the inflation prints that come in inform the market's expectations as well as the Fed's and the, and the FOMC members' expectations as to whether or not that story actually playing out. And so to the extent that we don't get big disappointments in today's print, then that's going to hold up the expectation that transitory story works. And that's about keeping the December rate hike in place. September in the balance sheet is about growth. The rate hikes are about inflation. I mean, within this, and I I don't believe I've ever asked this question. Let's try it out, David, on Mr. Rosenberg. (laughs) Uh, the, The idea, do you know ahead of the certitude of a CPI report? Or is it like the jobs report where we sort of go into it blind? Well, we, we go into it with a lot of expectations. I mean, we do a tremendous amount of analysis uh, within, our, uh, within, our, uh, sorry, within our inflation team and looking at the components, analyzing trends and pricing and building up bottoms-up forecasts. And so there are, just like there is in the case of the payroll report, and in some sense, because payroll and payroll volatility has been so low, the inflation prints have actually taken on as great or even greater importance. So there's a lot of expectations around a 0.2, 0.18 in terms of the number today. So you have built into the market the same kind of dynamic of expectations and then disappointment or um, 
excitement over the uh, you know the, the number that we're going to get in a few minutes. How does uh, this relate to the PPI numbers that we got yesterday? Do Good they complement one another? What do they tell you about this? Oh, Rosenberger has no idea how smart that ki- <laughs> question is, given the worship for PPI numbers 20 and 30 years ago. You know, there, there's a little bit. Um, they're, they're very different in terms of components in the short run, right? So when we're talking about these short-run market expectations and short-run movements, there's not a, a, a tremendous amount of correlation. What you do have is you have uh, it, it feeding into the narrative. It, again, Tom, back to your comments about comparing it to, to payroll employment. It's kind of like initial jobless claims or ADP. It, it, it feeds into the narrative around the the data over longer periods of time that are really kind of outside the day-to-day market movements. There's, there's obviously connection between purchase, purchase prices, uh, uh, producer prices, and, and, and consumer prices. But in the, in the short run, um, it, it really has a, a very different set of, of drivers. There's overlap, but, but there's, a, there's a very different set of near-term drivers. What, what's your sense of how wedded this Fed is to, to raising rates again this year? In other words, are they on a track that necessitates that, or is there really some flexibility or a chance here of reversal in, in light of, the, of these data and others? So, uh, you know, this is where the market gets a, a lot of cross-currents, because it, it's a diverse group of people that we hear from. And so it's a committee, and there's a committee-based decisions, and there's a spectrum of, of viewpoints. But what the central message of the committee is, is that we should get on with normalization, that the goals of the Fed have mainly been achieved, and that they want to move on with normalization at a gradual and predictable pace to not uh, unwind uh, financial market conditions, that would unwind the benefits of what uh, the, the, the accumulated benefits of, of, normal, of, of accommodation have given the economy, but they want to get on with normalization because they don't want to overheat. And, and part of the payroll story is these unemployment rates are real. Uh, every measure of the labor markets is, is pointing to the potential that we are or are on track to an overheating economy, and that's classic business cycle overheating that eventually becomes the roots of your next recession and they want to avoid that. So they want to get on with it without disrupting financial yeah. markets. I want to rip up the script here. We trust Jeff Rosenberg enough to be very adept at going outside of remit <laughs> and actually commenting on the state of our world. Uh, Poonam Goyal, Jeff Rosenberg at Bloomberg Intelligence just reported and published a scathing note on J.C. Penney and the idea of a stock going from 30 to 10, migrating 8, 9, 10, cratering to five and enjoying $3.93 this morning. Help us with what you observe of the disruption, as you mentioned, of Amazon. We, we are, when you look at Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, do you really have a handle on consumption as you see something like JCPenney blow up and Amazon prosper so well? Put it into today's, you know, 10-minute, 15-minute yeah. uh, attention span uh, uh, conversation. This, this is about the impact of technology on inflation. It's about the tech uh, impact I agree, of technology totally, on, yeah. on, on pricing. So, you know, JCPenney, the retailers, Amazon, what is that all part of? Technology is the dominant force in our era, right? The technology curve has gone vertical. The tremendous, dramatic changes, the second machine age, everything that we've seen, even in the last five to seven years, the incredible acceleration and the the macro implication of 
technology is technology is disinflationary. And that's the challenge. And it's a huge challenge back to our earlier conversation to the Fed, which is yes. still operating with 1960s technology of Phillips curves that anticipate <clears throat> that there's well, a trade-off between unemployment and broad-based price okay. inflation. But in, in, in a technology world, we may not see yeah. that to the same degree. So it's a huge impact. You know, Jeff, and a huge uncertainty. one of the high points yesterday was our conversation with a very distinguished Brigadier General, Mr. Kimmett, who has not only given public service to the nation, but he's had the ability to get up in front of a mic at the State Department and be the smooth guy. He's a CFA, etc. And I said to him, I said, why'd you get your CFA? And he said, because I went to Harvard Business School and didn't learn anything. And I mentioned <laughs> Tepper. I mentioned Carnegie Mellon, where you went. I mean, does the underlying mathematics of MIT Sloan, Carnegie Mellon, you know, some of the great public schools that we've got. Penn State has a rigorous economics program. And on and on, Michigan, where Diane Swank went. Does the mathematics of the 60s even work now in a, in a, in a, in a bimodal uh, American world? So, so one of the things that, you know, quantitative tools give us is they give us a rigorous way of thinking. They give us a systematic way of thinking that allows us to, to test the, the logic and our understanding. But there's limits to those tools. And they are best thought of as tools. And when we listen to our policymakers who are very um, wedded to these tools, it, it's interesting to see the debate about how much reliance is there. Like, for example, the estimation of R star. There have been five papers in the last five months written on this, and, and they come to very different conclusions. And it highlights that in many of these areas, the application of hard science to what is essentially a social science doesn't always work uh, as well as the rigor of the models would like us to believe. And so there's a place for judgment and there's a place for human understanding. And that's the important balance that, that we should get out of, you know, using our toolkit. And I think we hear that from, from many of our policymakers. And, and when we lose sight of that and when we get too wedded to a dogmatic view of the world and lose sight of the, the balance in that things can fail, uh, you can, uh, you know, really see things uh, come uh, unraveled. So I think that's a, an important, you know, sort of balancing point to the, the, the quantitative uh, toolkit. And, and the point about inflation is, is to sort of highlight that. You have structural change. So if I fit a bunch of historical data and it worked in the past, i got to understand how the structure of the economy is changing and what these influences are that might challenge mm. that happening in the future. Jeffrey Rosenberg with us, and we have a luxury with uh, an adept and quite facile Mr. Rosenberg to change the script. Uh, Jeff Rosenberg in the equity market, the VIX, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then we have a jump condition to 17. What is a jump condition in the VIX? I mean, still below the long-term average of 20. But what does that reset towards a little more angst in the VIX signal? Well, Tom, it's a really, really interesting conversation and, a, and an important conversation. You know, what that jump says to me is there has been a very, very large buildup over a number of years of people selling volatility. Now, that, that seems kind of a strange concept. How do you sell volatility? But one of the new developments, you know, every financial cycle is sort of characterized by some new development, okay. something we had really never seen before, and so don't really know how to analyze it, track it, understand it. It's the confluence of, you know, some very unique 
characteristics of this cycle and what is the predominant characteristic of this cycle it has been a perverse and persistent lack of income zero interest rates negative interest rates and so one of the strategies that has been incredibly successful has been to generate income through selling options selling volatility and it's been so successful that the sizes have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger so when you see a relatively small move triggered by the stuff we're talking about in the in the tweets and the geopolitical risk that small trigger results in a much larger reaction in this and that larger reaction should be telling you something it's telling you something about the buildup of these positions in the market and the vulnerability that buildup creates to a very small geopolitical risk in this case, but to any small spark. And it's a very kind of important data point to, to keep an eye on today and Monday and Tuesday and as we roll forward into the fall. You, uh, you have a note out on, on, uh, on bank loans, looking at, at bonds and bank loans in concert with, with each other. Uh, give, give us, uh, give us your, your sense, your take on, on uh, the degree to which bank loans should be considered at this point. Well, thank you for mentioning the note. Let me. I hate. I know you guys hate when I do shameless plugs. Shameless. Oh plug God, here is, it comes. Uh, is we we have a note out. It's my fixed income strategist publication. I do it monthly. It's on our website. Uh, but the note is, is is not just about bank loans. And and it's interesting, David. You know, every media person who's read my note talks about bank loans. And the whole point of putting out the piece is that it's, it, the title of the piece is Float Like a Butterfly. And so when I say floating rate, you say bank loans. I say floating rate, you say bank loans, right? But it, there's more to the floating rate universe than just bank loans. And one of the critical things that I'm highlighting here, going back to the earlier part of our conversation about what inflation means for keeping the Fed on its path, is that very quietly here, the Fed has been raising interest rates and raising the attractiveness of achieving income results by taking less risk. Yeah. What I just talked about is people are taking huge, inordinate amounts of risk to generate income okay. from selling volatility. You can do it in the front end of the yield curve, and it's still lower yielding than taking on a lot of risk, but the reduction in risk for what's becoming more attractive and yield right. is something investors should be taking a look okay, at. Okay, and I love the idea, and, and you're right, it's much more than floating paper. The idea then from Stanley Fisher as he opened his Economic Club of New York speech a year and a half ago, the ultra-accommodator speech, folks, is Jeff Rosenberg, to your point on floating and ba change behavior, he talked about the percent change from a low interest rate level. How much should we wait percent change from a given unit of, of, of yield versus the absolute change back to what's supposedly normal? So, uh, you know, the, the percent changes get very large. I, yes. I don't think it's the percent change, though, that matters here, Tom. I think what it is is it's more of a bit of a tipping point argument, meaning that mm -hmm. when you're at zero interest rates, you will do anything for income. And that's what we've been in. When you're at negative interest rates, you'll, devi you'll do even more to reach for income. But when you start to bring interest rates back from zero, the first 25 uh, it's not worth it. The first 50, not worth it. But we could be looking at very shortly here 125, 150, 175, and slowly and quietly, the fundamental backdrop that has dominated the last eight or nine years of zero interest rates is no longer there. 
And that kind of development has been happening, and I highlighted in this figure, the flattening of yield between high-risk yield, which yep. is going down in yield, and low-risk yield, which is going yeah. up in yield. That's unsustainable. You can't have that it, flat going on forever. We're out of time. i got 20 seconds. Does that lead to instabilities? By definition, if you have that conflation of yield, does it lead to unstable outcomes? It, it doesn't. It doesn't have to if people's portfolios are relatively balanced, and the recognition of that yield shift occurs, okay. and people are paying attention, which is the point of my piece. Okay. Look at some of this lower risk yield. This stuff is actually attractive okay. to be balancing. This was. We got to go. This was way too Euclidean. Yeah. Jeffrey Rosenberg, <laughs> thank you so much at BlackRock. Coming up, we do more geometry. This is Bloomberg. bit of move in the bond market lower yields by just a basis point a, a shift if you uh, mm -hmm. would i'm in here looking at the uh many lines of data uh, david gerber before you bring in our esteemed guest and i'm trying to figure out what's transitory and what's not it's transitory that the chicago cubs are in first place <laughs> that i would say is is probably tobacco I've got a negative, I, I think I've got a negative, the weighting on tobacco is less than 1%, and it is a negative statistic for the second month in a row. We went positive 0.4, positive 0.5, a huge jump, whatever that anomaly is, positive 0.1, and then last month we went negative 0 0.4, and now we're negative 0 0.1 if tobacco's transitory, and I don't even know, somewhere in here is wireless cell phones we'll have to look for that as well transitory uh, transitory uh diane swank joins us now she's the founder of ds economics she joins us on our phone line sponsored by spectrum enterprise your nationwide provider of scalable fiber network services and managed cloud uh, solutions and uh diane let me just start by asking you sort of what you're looking at beneath the headline numbers here i know you flagged shelter is something you're going to be paying particularly uh, close attention to here it looks like uh, shelter up here 0.1 uh, percent uh, give me a sense of what you're looking for this morning well, actually, one of the interesting things is, as Tom has already pointed out, there is the issue of the increase in uh, cell phone, the cell phone, cell phone yeah. continued to fall. And that's something that's supposed to be a one-off, but now it's we're several months into that one-off. It's, it's, it's a two-off. Yeah, it's a, yeah, right. a, a multiple-off. Yeah. On that tobacco issue that you mentioned, that's important. It came off of a surge in taxes in California, and California yeah. is such a large state that that's why we saw that fall off there. But, of course, this is more bad news for the Fed. Even if we keep looking at these one-off incidences, at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve is dealing with inflation that's too cool. This is, you know, the poor is too cool. Goldilocks is not quite here yet. She's not happy with sitting at this, uh, you know, at this particular place at the table, and neither is the Fed. And I think that's the real issue is didn't expect this to make or break the Fed's decision. I think what we're going to see is the data we see from September and October, which is going to come out um, that's the September and October inflation data. That comes out before the January meeting, the December meeting and in January. Um, that's the data that's going to determine whether or not we get a turn-of-the-year move and a turn-of-the-year rate hike um so we're still yeah. a little bit away from okay. there but you got to see a pickup they got to see a couple tenths of a pickup and now time folks we sell the advantage of the bloomberg terminal david i just brought up with a great search engine search thank you thomas secunda for that gift and david <laughs> tamborelli among others 
the, the log chart of wireless cell phone. Diane, I'm going to put this out on Twitter so you can see it. And as Diane correctly states, as always, we get that from Dr. Swank, the vectors in the ugly yelling direction. Let me do that. I'm going to put that out right now, folks. Uh, Diane, you pay so close attention to, to what Fed policymakers are saying. We've alluded to the, the transitory comment that the Fed chair made a few months ago. Uh, now we heard from Jim Bullard earlier this week. Our colleague Kathleen Hayes sat down with him uh, in St. Louis for an interview, and, and his pessimism about a rise in inflation was real. Didn't think we'd see much change here by uh, by the end of the year. What's your sense of how much unanimity there is among Fed policymakers on the issue of the transitory nature, the so, so-called transitory nature of, of inflationary headwinds? I think there was a lot of hope that they were transitory, and yeah. I think what you're seeing is that shift over to if it's transitory or not, it's been it's being becoming too long. It certainly is too long and has already postponed a September rate hike. I frankly thought we never had a September rate hike in there, but the next determinant is do we have enough for December rate hike? And what's a real challenge for the Fed is even though many of them believe this is transitory and it could work out by next year and their medium-term outlook is still fine, what they're concerned about is that without inflation, it's hard to have the cover they need to raise raise rates against the backdrop of additional financial easing. You know, who would have thought some, you know, some kinds of access to credit would be much easier to get today than it was when the Fed started raising rates. And so this is still a highly accommodative Fed, but it's even more so, you know, a credit market that's beginning to finally loosen up, which we, you know, would expect normally, but there's been nothing normal about this recovery. Let me let me put a question to you that I put to Jeff Rosenberg just a moment ago, and that is how you regard the CPI numbers uh, in concert with the, the PPI numbers. What does one tell you about the other, if anything? Well, you know, they are, they're related. Um, they are different weighting. The PCE numbers are really important. Yeah. And the PPI, the PPI numbers are sort of a pipeline number. They've redone them. So our history on them isn't as good in terms of how much they really give us in terms of a lead time, in terms of overall pipeline inflation, and how much that's actually translated into what consumers spend. I think it's important to note, too, is this division we're really seeing is it's more structural and it's really reminiscent of the late 1990s. We had Walmart back then hit critical mass and hit yeah. rural areas and really brought down yeah. prices. Now yeah. we're having Amazon phenomena. They're very you, similar in terms of pricing. Do you hear a dog in the back? Yeah, reacting to the latest Maynard, read, I think the latest Maynard, CPI figure. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Maynard Keynes barking. Maynard right? Keynes. Maynard Keynes. Yeah, be good. I'm doing this from home today. You asked me to be on TV. I've got family coming in and I've got... That's okay. I got a face for radio because I had, um, I watch myself carefully. Thankfully, everything's benign, but I have to get... Okay. <laughs> we'll continue with Diane Swank and her dog, Maynard Keynes, this morning. Diane, let me just ask what you've been thinking about more broadly here. We can talk a bit more about uh, these inflation reads uh, uh, if you want. But I, I just wonder, when you look at the economy generally, what's, what's giving you the most pause, the greatest concern uh, at this point? Well, clearly it's policy uncertainty, and we're seeing that pick up globally as well as in the United States. Many people that were betting on tax reform, health care reform, and the whole broad spectrum of the agenda are now putting a lot of projects on the shelf that they thought that they would be moving on this year because of that uncertainty, and that dampens growth. And so that's something I'm very concerned about going forward. Also, looking at these inflation numbers, I do think, you know, the core number is held at 1.7 percent. We did see, you asked me earlier about the relationship between the P. CPI and the CPI. Yeah. 
You know, really interesting is that we saw a surge in accommodation costs in the PPI. We did not see that. The opposite happened in the July um, accommodations portions for the CPI. And so you really are seeing some disconnect there that could be squeezing margins. It could be Airbnb providing a lot of competition for these accommodations more narrowing margins. I mean, all of the above is a little bit rough, and it gets to how much um, pricing power do we have in even what is a tight labor market economy, and it's still very limited. For the Federal Reserve, you know, one more rate hike I think they'd like to squeeze in this year, but it's going to be difficult for them. They're really concerned about easing financial conditions at the other end of the spectrum. They're also worried about the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty. We're now talking about an expansion that we're eight years into, and you're starting to see some things that are very similar to the 1990s, and that that seems almost impossible, 1999. But um, there is some tight labor market conditions where some producers and some service providers in particular are saying, we don't have enough qualified individuals, either low-skilled or high-skilled, to fill the jobs, and we're having to curb what we do. We haven't heard that since 1999. And that's something to be concerned about, especially when we talk about pulling back further on immigration as well. That's a big concern among whether they're large, medium, or small um, manufacturers and um, Mm -hmm. service providers out there. We're really seeing people having a hard time finding workers that they once thought were easy to find. Help me with uh, the role that energy is playing right now in the in the U.S. economy. We see uh, oil here hovering around 48 bucks a a barrel, WTI at 48 bucks a a barrel. What's the role that energy is playing? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that we've gotten so efficient. That's one of the places we've seen extraordinary productivity gains. We can produce oil in this price range now, and we're a world player. That is amazing. We are still adding jobs in the oil industry. It's about 8,000 or 0.5% of the total labor force um, a month, so it's Um. not a big sector. You know, we have to keep that in mind. But it has spillover effects that have yet to come through in terms of investment. Mm -hmm. When you're running at these prices, different than 100 bucks per barrel, and you're investing like crazy. We don't have all those spillover effects yeah. we'd like to see right now. Diane, Dominic Constam, always brilliant at Deutsche Bank the other day, suggests lower inflation, but yet a, a circuitous positive of real economic growth. So better real GDP combined with lower inflation in a mix that gets you to nominal GDP. The center tendency of that is you got to have investment at some point. You are hardwired. I can't begin to convey how unique Ms. Swank is besides she has Chicago Cub tickets, which is the basic (laughs) idea. Diane, you are hardwired into investment decisions. When do they turn on the investment switch? You know, we really just haven't seen it yet. Outside of oil sector, which is coming back a little bit, but clearly not booming, it's really very tepid. And like I said, I'm talking to companies that were ready to go this year with corporate tax reform and what they thought would be an expansion for them to be able to do some stuff. What what is holding them back? Don't give me this Washington malarkey. It's more than that. Why? It is also, you're right, it's also a slow economy. What's been interesting, too, is that you are starting to see some manufacturers talk about more automation because they're literally running out of workers. In many of these small towns, it's a very small labor pool. And they moved out to these rural areas because it was cheaper okay. labor. They had high quality. Now they can't okay. pass the Diane, Paint the picture. You're in Chicago, and I know you're on the magic mile there with Prada and all the other stores. <laughs> Diane, you go, you go west of Chicago, X number of miles. Describe that small factory. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because actually they're, they're further than that. A lot of the factories of the companies that I'm talking to are in northern Wisconsin. They're in northern Michigan. They're very far from urban centers. Unlike the Amazon um, places we're seeing, the million square feet in Kenosha, right outside of Chicago to get our, you know, to get our Amazon deliveries really quickly, these are factories that are actually much further out. And they're very, very small towns, which have, um, they've tapped the labor force, but then anyone else that they try to bring in, Every single one of them says they have a hard time passing a drug test. I just looked at the Quest drug um, passing data. And if you look at the map, they have a great interactive map. The highest drug um, positive rates are in rural America. You don't, it's complete flip flop from the past where you saw urban cores and a lot of drug usage. It's now very, if you, where the map red, runs hot on positive drug tests is in rural America. And that's where these factories move to. And so they're having a hard time attracting a pool that of workers. That is so cool. I just brought up the it. map. I just brought up Isn't the map. Isn't it a great map? It's yeah. a terrific map. It's in my, it's in my monthly write up this month. The darkest, on, uh, the darkest, the labor market. David Gurr, the darkest color is Brooklyn, New York. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> David, jump 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 in here with the, uh, Diane. It's great having you on. You give us, you know, all, the guy up in northern Wisconsin, David. All I know is he's sitting three rows down from David Harrow at Green Bay Packers games. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he might be already working at a factory in Great, but one of the things we're going to see is that those overtime hours go up. But again, that happened in the 1990s because they can't find additional workers, so they run them overtime, and then you start getting fatigue and risk of accidents. Mm. Also, with that Quest data, this is really interesting. You expected to see the opioid stuff. That's actually peaked off in the last two years. The biggest surge in drug usage outside of the states that have legalized marijuana is cocaine. And that surprised me. And one of the main drivers of that is mandatory tests after an accident is cocaine. And that surprised me. And that's something that I think is important is, you know, you're seeing positive drug tests after an accident. And that's not something anyone can afford. Diane, great to speak with you as always. Thank you very much uh, and for uh, helping us take apart those numbers there uh, in real time. Just got them crossing the Bloomberg and going right into it. Diane Swank, the founder of DS Economics, joining us on our phone line. Michael Mayo is taking stagecoach lessons. He darkens the door at Wells Fargo. After a storied career of upsetting executives, what was it like when you met the senior management of Wells Fargo? Did they, was there silent? Is it like Game of Thrones where you go into that big room at King's Landing and, you know, you got to watch your back? What was it like? Well, at Wells Fargo Securities, the head of research, global research, is Diane Shoemaker-Creed. Yes, who's well-known within the industry. She's one of the the top uh, ranked uh, women in banking. And, you know, she said we're a very collaborative firm. And I'd say uh, yesterday, you know, we came out with our launch of banks at Wells Fargo Securities. And part of the launch, I dealt, collaborated with about a dozen other analysts uh, within research. And so the collaboration is just fantastic. So regardless of my, my career, Tom, yeah. so far, week six at Wells Fargo Securities, yeah. so good. <laughs> You've only insulted a California-sized uh, group of people. Mike Mayo, you're fiery and impassioned, and let's get right to the house of Mr. Corbett. People have been waiting and waiting. Why now on Citibank? So we expect Citigroup stock to double in the next four to five years. That's partly because of what Michael Corbett, the CEO and Citigroup, has done, and it's partly because of what we think they should do. What Citigroup has done is they've 
reduction, reduced structural risk, permanent risk reduction at Citigroup right. to probably the lowest level that I've seen since the merger with Travelers. This and that, you know, through the stock beta, you're going to see the biggest reduction in the stock beta, the biggest reduction in the cost of capital, and the biggest reduction in risk premium for any bank stock around. How much is Citigroup like Sandy Wiles Citigroup? Is it completely moved on from the wild years? It's so much moved on. Well, number one, Citigroup can concentrate on being a large bank and optimizing what they have. No more big bank mergers. I'm not going to say, you never say never with mergers, but the big mergers, the merger after merger, it took Citigroup, you know, like a decade and a half to integrate these acquisitions. Yes. Actually, Citigroup had something called Project Rainbow, which is creating one global consumer platform. They finally finished that last year, and that stems back from the early part of last decade mm-hmm. with Sandy Wiles' acquisitions. That's one. Number two would be the credit risk. Citigroup has a lot more prime lending and super prime lending, a whole lot less subprime lending. Now, some of that was put in the books after Sandy Wiles left, for sure, but I'd say in terms of the credit risk, the overall risk profile of the firm, acquisitions, risk is a lot less at Citigroup. And over the next five years, we expect Citigroup to buy back one third of its shares. And the only thing that prevents them from doing that is messing up. So as long as they don't blow a big hole in their balance sheet, as long as they don't you know, trip on the way <laughs> to work, we think they can buy back stock. So you can legally front run the biggest buyer of Citigroup stock. That is, you can buy shares of Citigroup stock knowing that Citigroup, or based on our forecast, that they'll buy back one-third of shares over five years. I've never seen anything like that before. So that's what they've done. Now, what they haven't done is they still haven't generated returns above the cost of capital. You still have single-digit return on equity, return on tangible equity. David wants to jump in here, but what do they do? Get retail going? Well, some of this is in their plans. They had their first investor day in a decade a few weeks ago. And some of this will simply be a matter of time, getting a lot more efficient, getting a little bit more revenue growth. And some of that's a function of the major headwinds, you know, having, you know, I, play, played out. I would digress, Mr. Gurl. They've got some really stiff competition. I was just waiting for you to make a joke about how you saw Project Rainbow perform live back in 19-whatever it was, Tom. You didn't do it. Well, that was at Boulder. Uh. <laughs> Mike, let me ask you uh, about the comparison between Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. How useful is that comparison today, and and what does it tell you about both of those banks? Well, I think it's very useful. We did a major change. I've been on your show in the past, and we said Morgan Stanley was our top pick five years ago. And so for the first time in five years, we swapped. Uh We now pick Goldman Sachs over Morgan Stanley, even though Goldman Sachs is, you know, on their back. If, If I said, you know, terrible trading quarter, the heat is on calls for change in management, who would I be talking about? I'd be talking about Morgan Stanley, you know, mid-2012. So role reversal here. Uh, I do think the heat is on, Goldman Sachs. One-third of the company trading has performed worst in class when you look at year-over-year comparisons. How on their backs are they at this point? I think the intensity at Goldman Sachs is probably greater than it's ever been since their IPO. When's the last time you heard the CEO and CFO say publicly, as they've done over the last month, that, you know, we have not executed so if the CEO is saying you're not executing, I think there's a lot of vacations Some getting executions canceled. executions to happen, perhaps. Yeah, a, l- yeah. a lot of vacations <laughs> getting canceled I, at Goldman Sachs this month. I yeah. agree with this, I know, but not just Goldman Sachs, David. I would agree this is one of those years in the street where you're just going, are we going away for eight days? No, I don't think so. There's a lot of that going on. David, ask one more question, Mr. <laughs> Mayo. I want to come back and ask him more general questions and ask him a smart what, what's, question. What's Morgan Stanley's focus right now? Is it on growth at this point? 
Well, look, James Gorman was underappreciated five years ago. He agreed transformed Morgan Stanley's business mix as much as any large bank. I mean, look at wealth management, investment management. That went from one third to one half. So. You know, he was, you know, skating where the puck is going to be, using the Wayne Gretzky analogy. Uh-huh. And they benefited through that for the last five years. However, I went to the annual meeting. I was almost alone. You wouldn't miss it, I know. Up in so. Purchase, New York. It was a rainy day, and I asked almost all of the questions. But my key question was, you achieved the savings with the brokerage integration with Smith Barney. You refinanced your high-cost debt back from, you know, earlier this decade. You achieved a lot of the project streamlined expense savings. You redeployed the excess deposits. In other words, you've done a lot of your self-help. Mm-hmm. What's next? And they said to some degree their, their growth is a function of the economy. So I'd like to see Morgan Stanley better define right. the next stage of their evolution. You know, it's all fine, but from my standpoint, they're a victim of their success mm-hmm. when it comes to the stock price, at least relative to Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs. And since Goldman Sachs went public, Goldman has shown about twice as fast yeah. organic revenue growth with about mm-hmm. half as much earnings risk. Mm-hmm. And, sec- and they're cheaper. 40 seconds. You made a lot of headlines a year ago on governance and Bank of America. Uh, are, are you choosing to review Bank of America and Mr. Moynihan's efforts? Look, we think that Bank America stock has 50% upside over the next three years. I, we think this is the stage for national banking that they got distracted in the mm-hmm. 90s because they didn't integrate the It's just not got the move they, that they, Citigroup's they, got. They, they got. they got distracted by the financial crisis. They're growing organic mm-hmm. deposits. We still think the board of Bank America should hold management more accountable, but we think management will get the okay. job done anyway. We're going to come back with Mike Mayo. A couple more minutes with Mr. Mayo here. He's with Wells Fargo at Securities. Green on the screen, up 39. The Dow, 21,000. 883 and the VIX comes in 15.17. Some real volatility to the VIX, some nice uh, tenths of a percentage point moves. It has an elasticity that I haven't seen in weeks and weeks. And of course, much of that wrapped around uh, the knock on effects of our geopolitics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.